And I'm not a really good American because I like to form my own opinions. Huh? What? There's tons of examples of corporate greed, inequality, and disregard for the environment that make people wonder if markets are evil. And they are. Maybe Lisa's right about America being the land of opportunity, and maybe a deal has a point about the machinery of capitalism being oiled with the blood of the workers. Where it's like, hey, wake up, liberals. You can't always do, uh, sometimes you gotta, uh, you know, uh, but that's a, that's that's actual quote from Karl Marx. In recognizing a communist, physical appearance counts for nothing. If he openly declares himself to be a communist, we take his word for it. Um, if I were to ever start a country with a communist government, wink, wink, wait 12 years. Men are seduced by communists, women so much so that they deem communism nice. Communists murdered mostly the Nazis. Bottom-up horizontal connection, sharing at all levels is key. Describing is anarchy. Are you an anarchist? I mean, am I a member? An anarchist group, yes. Anarchists have a group? I believe so, sure. What kind of garbage is that? Oops, my anarchy symbol. Okay, welcome, welcome. This is the Three Left Show. I'm your host, Dan Platt. So this edition of the show, I am broadcasting on Twitch. So this is the Three Left Show, uh, your place for ultra left wing politics or politics from uh, that represent viewpoints from anarchism, socialism, and ecology. Those are the three lefts, representing a positive vision for left of itself and for itself reading articles from various viewpoints to give you a bigger picture of the issues of today, the past, and tomorrow. So this edition of the show, the theme is internationalism. Uh, Let's get moving. So how to introduce this topic? Well, obviously, uh, well, not obviously. Currently, um, there is still um, warfare, Modern Warfare 3 style stuff happening in Eastern Europe, particularly Ukraine, of course. Um, so I'm going to cover that in the second half of the show. Um, maybe my take, but it's a mixture of takes from other sources, uh, you, as it always usually is, because uh, I am not an expert or journalist on these things. So I will uh, rely on others. In the first half, I'm going to be talking more about internationalism broadly, particularly the not the defending of socialist states, but simply the the situation with them broadly, as well as pushing back against liberal narratives about other countries, particularly ones that have left-wing governments. Because I consider China, Venezuela, Cuba to have to have left-wing governments. You know, uh, I don't uh, write off a government for being a government uh, or for doing things that are authoritarian. I feel that um, these things are, these terms are not useful. As a left tuber Hakim would point out, an Iraqi socialist, point out that it's just not useful to draw these distinctions uh, that a government is authoritarian or libertarian. Uh, A state is a state is a state. A state uses force to, you know, to enforce laws. Um, There's a paradox in saying that, you know, there's law, which is something that's nonviolent when all law is either brought about by an act of violence, like a revolution. Even America had a revolutionary war. We fought a war. Uh, Violence had to be done because diplomacy broke down. This is usually how all wars start. 
there is usually not such a thing as aggressive war, though, of course, the World Wars are, well, the second one in particular, is considered to be the prime example of an aggressive war. That's why all the treaties and the statecraft afterward was about trying to, or attempting to, at least optimistically speaking, end aggressive war, making it actually illegal that the international community will, in fact, oppose any quote-unquote aggressive war. But that, that's, that's more about the current situation with Russia Ukraine. First, but I want to outline what is an internationalist, eco-socialist position or viewpoint using this site here, ecosocialist.scot, which is, of course, uh, Scotland. And it is their statement on the G7 conference back last year, middle of last year. So even in the meantime, there was the Glasgow COP22 conference that was uh, meant to, rather uh, the PR statement would say, it, uh, it's to stop climate change. And, uh, but the G7 is, is, is in particular the top seven nations, the most industrialized, the most imperialist so to speak, you know, the remnants, uh, which are Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the UK, the US, you know, the winners, well, not the winners, but the UA, the EU is included. These are the G7, it's been expanded, there's other conferences on global affairs that include, you know, it's G20, it's, you know, the 20 most wealthiest or developed countries. As uh, the title of this episode will be living in a multipolar world. This conflict, as others have noticed, is causing quite a dramatic shift in how geopolitics is working. We'll get into that as I read different articles that relay opinions on this. Moving forward here, let's just read the statement from the Eco-Socialist Alliance, particularly in Scotland or the UK, just to talk about like where am I coming from here? Uh, when I'm talking about global politics and an activist place in that. So first, um, the G7 countries, as I listed, have a great part of the immense wealth of the richest countries in the world in 2021. This wealth is more than sufficient to provide for the needs of food, water, health, housing, and education of the entire global population, if you do the math, at least for like a minimum amount. We face multiple interlinked and inseparable crises. Climate, environment, mass extinction, emergent infectious diseases, as well as the economic. Oligarchic ownership of industry and the transnational corporations are key contributors to environmental degradation and to emergent infectious diseases. And, you know, the crises listed. They are inimical and a core barrier to the urgent measures needed to address the nested crises we face. They're the cause and also, you know, the barrier to solving them. The, the oligarchic power that it's that power is so concentrated. The world and its population need system change, a just eco-socialist eco transition from the unsustainable chaos of neoliberal capitalism. We call upon the G7 nations to agree a, a plan in preparation for the COP26 meeting in November, which also occurred <laughs> in post, um, to agree to a plan on the COVID-19 pandemic and in other or possible emergent infectious diseases. The, you know, this crisis, which includes immediately introduce, and this is a state political statement, it's a press statement, so it's 
reading like a platform here. Immediately introduce a patent waiver for COVID-19 vaccines that would allow countries to manufacture treatments locally. Fully fund COVAX and set up an aid fund to help with vaccine manufacturing, research, and development. Increase funding to the WHO, which is World Trade Organization. So as an aside, here in America, we have all kinds of debate squabbles and political strife, at least in our left-wing organizations, as well as in the general public. At least a quarter, you know, oppose vaccines or getting even just just COVID vaccines. Maybe they're pro other vaccines. They're, they've got their measles shot, but they're afraid or skeptical or suspicious of the COVID vaccine. Now, meanwhile, while America, because we're always a land of ac- excess, where we have enough for everyone, but we actually see it as a point of freedom that a cross-section of Americans don't get things like full education or COVID shots, COVID vaccines, COVID treatment, hospital, um, health care. Other parts of the world are being deprived of these things. That includes COVID vaccines, and they suffer more for it. On the climate crisis, you know, the demand is that the G7, or the world powers, agree that fossil fuels must stay in the ground. That means no new coal mine in West Cumbria, UK. We need a massive global program of green public works investing green jobs to develop renewable energy, replace harmful tech reliant on fossil fuel energy in homes, industry, and agriculture, with free technology transfer for developing countries. To agree and implement a significant cut in greenhouse gas emissions by 70% by 2030, from a 1990 baseline. We need honest and transparent accounting and measurement of these emissions, taking account of outsourcing, exposing the dishonesty of offsetting calculations, and including military greenhouse gas emissions in calculations of the reductions needed. Because, you know, when our military uh, has its fleets out using diesel or what have you, they're moving around the world. So you can't just calculate it based on where pollution is being done. Now, all the things listed here I've covered in previous uh, episodes. Take a look at any other ecological or greenwashing uh, where I talk about the dishonest, dishonesty and offsetting calculations, you know, offsetting carbon emissions and other things. Uh, the 70% goal is pretty important. I'm going to put, it, take a, put a name to the position I have when it comes to degrowth or Green New Deal type programming, that we, our goal needs to, is, is 70-30. That we need to reduce energy use or resource use by 70% so that the remaining 30% can be filled uh, and done by renewables. Because when it comes to how much energy you know, to meet demand can renewables make, it's more realistic, or rather, it's the it's the only thing possible that it can only fill in thirty percent of the gap. The ratio has precedent, at least going from a micro scale of a house. When you have a net zero house, when you start from a you know completely wasteful building or a building like this, it uses this much energy. Let's say a hundred units of gas. You get to zero use of fossil fuels by making the house 
reduce the need for gas, you know, that you, you use insulation and efficiency uh, and reduction to cut 70% of the energy use. That way, solar and geothermal can actually cover that 30%. It can't cover all of it. It can't cover all demand. So we need to degrow 70%. So the 30% left can be renewables. It can be quality over quantity. Quality of life, not just more crap. Which is my pushback against uh, not many leftists like smack talk, degrow for no growth. But uh, some do. And it's very, very uh, weird. <laughs> so anyway. Uh, next in this uh, list, end emissions trading schemes and make genuine reductions in harmful emissions. No, not just market crap. Recognize the particular impacts of the long-term global crises and knock-on effects of the localized catastrophic events on women, children, elders, the disabled. Catastrophic climate events and sea level rise produce the casualties of this, the event, but the victims are the result of systemic abuse, discrimination, and failure of governmental and corporate responsibility, which you could say a government and economic responsibility. On the environment of mass extinction, move away from massive factory farms and large-scale monoculture agribusiness as a method of producing food and support small farmers in eco-friendly farming methods and invest in green agricultural tech to reduce synthetic fertilizer, that means made of and pesticide use in our culture, replacing these with organic methods. Uh, many farmers and countries can prove it can be done. More on that in the next story. <laughs> and deforestation in the tropical and boreal forests and reducing demand uh, in G720s for food, timber, and biofuel imports. Something to understand is that much of the world economy is still extractive industries. This includes Russia. Russia itself, most of its economy, is still extraction-based, meaning it's extracting resources to be used by us, us Americans. And what do we give back? Debt? War? Basically, we, we import the world's resources and we export weapons. What a great system. Next point, commit to a massive increase in protected areas for biodiversity conservation, both the G720s and making funding and support available to do this in the global south. And then more points on the economic crisis to increase wages and cut hours for all G7 workers and involve trade unions in the economic transition without any loss of living standards. So it feels like we need to spend 15 years developing unions that way, then those unions then to spend another 15 years transitioning us to a worker owned slash controlled economy. Anyway, but first, work involvement in workplaces. We need to adopt just transition principles, creating well-paid jobs in, quote, the new economy. To outlaw tax havens so wealthy corporations and individuals pay their fair share, cancel international debt and global, of the global south, support urgent development of sustainable and affordable public transit, and provide resources for popular education and involvement in implementing and enhancing a just transition. So this is just a general outline of an eco-socialist platform, agenda, what have you. And why do I read this? Because I think it's a good to have a baseline, a, an idea of the vision when I talk of internationalist eco-socialist politics. 
where are my where's my party coming from that the greens and other eco-socialists so on the subject of being less reliant on fossil fuels let's look at a nation that it's kind of assumed it can't we can't have an attitude the whole like you know we need to actually intervene and have an actual green new deal to transition the economy away from fossil fuels we just can't wait till we've run out of fossil fuels and then we are forced to adapt to a fossil fuel free future it will be too late we'll have too much climate change too much climate came out chaos we'll be in the th two degree three degree of celsius warming we will bake and um billions will suffer so we have to transition now and not in 30 years now now in the case of some uh well cuba that well had some fossil fuels cut off so they had to do their just transition you know it was forced on them so it wasn't really a just transition you know a lot of people suffered that's why a lot of cubans had to flee in the 90s i still remember not per not personally but uh there was this uh you know it's it hot news in the late 90s alien gonzalez you know he had a lot of people had to leave cuba because of shortages there but country itself and the government did not collapse so now a um, piece from jacobin titled how cuba survived and surprised in a post-soviet world yes the socialist state so-called authoritarian which is uh, last year uh written a democratically written uh constitution or at least as democratic as you can get by having basically written via town halls passed a new constitution the renewal of government so this is written by Sarah Kozamet. Subtitle is, After the Fall of the USSR, Most Observers Expected Cuba to Follow in Its Wake. But the Cuban system has now lasted for 30 years since the Soviet collapse. To explain its persistence, we need to drop Cold War stereotypes and look at the Cuban experience in its own right. A.K.A. both take a subjective view from the Cuban perspective, as well as looking at things objectively, of instead of looking at things through the lens of the cold war and authoritarian governments versus liberal governments and just looking at things states and peoples as they are so on with the story the fall of the soviet union in 1991 and the consequent demise of its multilateral economic assistance programs shook what had been the socialist world by the time the ussr voted to formally dissolve Council for Mutual Economic Assistance, known as ComCon, which was the economic trading bloc that provided crucial economic assistance and preferential trade agreements to smaller communist or so left-wing states, which had already been dismantled. But this threw Cuba, ComCon's only member in the Western Hemisphere, into economic turmoil. Nearly overnight, the island nation found itself cut off from its primary trading partner. It lost more than four-fifths of both its import and export markets, which had supplied it with energy, food, and machinery, helping sustain the Cuban economy for well over three decades, ever since the start of the U.S. embargo in 1961. You know, they had to trade through the Soviet Union because, based on this U.S. embargo still in effect, they can't or are not allowed to trade with anyone else. GDP plunged by 35% over the space of three years. Cuban agricultural output fell by half, construction by 74%, manufacturing capacity by staggering 90 
The lack of fuel imports from abroad paralyzed pretty much all industry. Lengthy blackouts and food queues became a feature of daily life. No gasoline to power cars or buses. Cubans had to walk or cycle to destinations. Lack of electricity meant there were no fans to starve off sweltering heat. And no way to power refrigerators either. People's intake of calories fell by about one-third as hunger malnutrition rose to levels not seen since before the revolution. Because, you know, things were bad before the revolution, not just after, you know, because everything was fine before. No, it was terrible. So, after the fall. Few in the Western world expected Cuba's political and economic system to survive. History, we were told, had ended. Well, at least by one author, Fukushima. Uh, capitalism reigned, while the socialist world crumbled. It was only a matter of time before Cuban, the Cuban exception ceased to be exceptional. Yet in Cuba, history continued to plot on. Thirty years after the fall of the USSR, government that emerged from the Cuban Revolution still holds power. It has now existed in the post-Soviet world longer than it's spent under the wing of the Soviets themselves. The distinctive Cuban model has endured, and its leaders still seek to balance the pressures of functioning amidst an overwhelmingly capitalist global system with the objective of advancing a non-capitalist economy that doesn't follow the same logic. You know, it doesn't have to be completely socialist, because uh, it isn't. So in our book, We Are Cuba, how a revolutionary people have survived in a post-Soviet world, Helen Yaffe sets out to explain how Cuba's model of socialism has held out against such odds. The answer, Yaffe argues, can only be found by taking the Cuban revolution on its own terms, instead of allowing the residential insularity of U.S. Cold War battles to condition the debate. Now, this is a theme. Hold on to that, you know, line. Because it's something that we shouldn't also do when talking about Ukraine. Uh, another side note for those listening in, uh, well, I don't think anyone's listening in Albany, but uh, but a side note, in my city, uh, Helen Yaffe herself is in fact doing a tour, speaking tour, or at least she's a speaker who's available to discuss her book, and she's in town this week. Anyway, those who perceive the Cuban system exclusively as a repressive dictatorship are unable to come to terms with the real society that exists, and by some measures, even thrives, beneath the obfuscating layers of political rhetoric. Yaffe aims to provide an economic and policy-based analysis of Cuba's last 30 years, evaluating the island's progress and setbacks on the basis of its own objectives, you know, not the objectives or standards of suburban America. It's like, what really frustrates me about like such rhetoric about progress is that progress is seen as like when a country has suburbs. Many, uh, maybe including yourself, believe or know that suburbs are <laughs> literally a cul-de-sac of progress, that they're wasteful, that must be subsidized um, by various means, as uh, as government maybe by myself or others. Yaffe's book identifies several reasons for persistence of the Cuban model. A willingness to adjust the parameters of centralized government control is one of them. Cubans remember the 1980s as a time of relative abundance and stability. Soviet goods filled store shelves, and workers who met or exceeded production quotas frequently received beach vacations, even international travel. From 81 to 84, Cuba's annual average growth was 7%, pretty good, starkly at odds with the downwards trajectory in the rest of Latin America which was currently being 
ruled by a bunch of neoliberal regimes or coming up and coming neoliberal regimes like Pinochet. The region as a whole experienced a 10% drop in GDP during those years. However, there were a number of challenges associated with managing economic productivity. The growth, the growth of excessive bureaucracy and a focus on providing material incentives for workers that bloated the budget, which eventually led to stagnation. So, you know, it's really liberals are still joke about like, oh, they we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us. Well, Cuba, they did, in fact, want to pay workers fairly and give incentives for doing more. Unlike in America, where you can work uh, overtime hours and not get paid for it. Uh, in 1986, Fidel Castro opted not to follow in the liberalizing strides of Gorbachev's Pestroika and Glasnost's programs in the USSR. Instead, he sought to reform Cuba's central planning system by re-centralizing control over the economy. His government also launched several new platforms for citizen participation and opened the island up to tourism. Right, So keeping the centralizing aspects of the government, centralized power, but then providing platforms of citizen participation so it's in fact democratic, uh, thus the name democratic centralism, uh, which is in fact kind of ML tendency or vanguardist tendency, but you know, you have the government, it is centralized, but everyone actually can access and influence it. Unlike in a liberal democracy where you do need a lot of money to influence it, or you need to be exceptionally well organized as labor was once upon a time. So Yaffe argues that this renewed emphasis on state intervention against what the government saw as the inadequacies of the market put Cuba in a better position to withstand the Soviet collapse a few years later. Since the state had recentralized agricultural production, for example, it was able to get food to those who needed it most during the worst years of the crisis, roughly 91-95, which became known as the Special Period. In explaining how Cuba made it through this crisis, Yaffe also stresses the importance of a humanistic austerity. As the state's budget dried up in the early 90s, Cuban leaders made drastic cuts. State spending on defense, for example, fell 86%. Ah, so you see, austerity, but they also cut defense. They also cut the army, not just social spending, because they had to cut everything, which is what we're told. We have to cut everything, but not the police. We'll cut education or stop the growth of education with inflation. Uh, or the rate of thing, uh, costs to rise. But we'll never cut police. Never cut military. And it also eliminated 15 ministries. How's that for cutting government blow? However, it maintained an even increased expenditure on health, welfare, and social services. Subsidies helped ensure that basic goods did, in fact, reach people and protected jobs. Broken infrastructure or equipment might have gone unrepaired, but every school in the hospital stayed did stay open, you know, the least. The share GDP accounted for by spending on welfare and health rose 29% and 13% respectively in 1990-1994. The mid-90s saw the graduation of 15,000 new medical professionals bring the doctor-to-patient ratio to one doctor for every 202 inhabitants. So this is a part of that policy of like, okay, we can't export sugar anymore or it's not worth it we will export doctors 
Despite the economic collapse, Cuba's child mortality rates actually dropped, and life expectantly inched up from 75 years in 1990 to actually 75.6. So everyone's quote-unquote starving, but life expectancy went up. So, yeah. Although an increase of six months may appear trivial, it would have been reasonable to expect a drop. Everything that did occur in ex-communist European states, where everything was liberalized, uh, where life expectancy fell six years. Cuba's fiscal deficit soared as a result of this approach, but it averted the threat to, of famine. To make up for the lack of imports, Yaffe reports, local food production expanded, ushering in organic urban farming systems from which Cuba is now widely known. After eight years of state control over agriculture, an attempt to curb price gouging in food supplies, the state allowed private farmers' markets to reopen. So, in fact, actually, it took a lot, it centralized power and then decentralized. It is, in fact, possible. Because the usual liberal American assumption is once the government takes some power, it will never let it go. It can never re-liberalize unless forced to or regime change. Wink, wink. But I find it encouraging when a left-wing government, you know, if it takes, centralizes power and then of its volition, or because people demanded it, or were asking, decentralized. The government was actually responsive to people. So by choosing fiscal stimulus over austerity, Cuban economists helped shield the, shield the population from one of the most devastating effects of economic collapse. In 1905, economic growth resumed. Although it took 10 years to get back to pre-crisis levels, incremental improvements made it easier for people to get by. By comparison, Recovery from the 08-09 crash in the U.S. also nearly took a decade, while the recovery period for most ex-Soviet countries was even longer, going about 15 years. So other innovations to list. After making it out of this trough, the Cuban government launched a number of initiatives that were meant to stabilize the economy. The island's lack of access to fossil fuel energy had proved catastrophic in the 90s and the 2000s. It still experienced constant blackouts. In 2006, the government began pursuing alternative development strategies, making large-scale investments in renewables. In a series of chapters, Yaffe describes the development of job training programs that turned unemployed young Cubans into social workers, and an energy revolution that reduced wasteful practices and expanded the use of renewables and ensured the government's successful entrance into a biotech industry. Yaffe argues that such programs allowed Cuba to get back onto the path of economic growth, which in turn enabled it to improve standard living. Now, all these statements on a side is not to say that it's universally good. It's talking about how things were improved in certain areas, which is basically how you should always see any kind of, um, whether it's even when it's capitalist intervention, capitalist investment, it is improving some areas while others are still blight, blighted or underdeveloped or undeveloped completely. As many areas in America are, you know, completely backsliding into uh, underdeveloped or undeveloped status in compared to other areas, like the metro areas. So he talks to them. This article continues with uh, politics, and uh, let's take a look at uh, this section called the state-centered view. While Yaffe's book seeks to correct some important misconceptions about Cuba, it also raises a series of questions. How, for example, can we explain the large numbers of young Cubans who want to emigrate? 
It's true the U.S. economic blockade is a major cause of Cuba's deprivations. Uh, the rates of defection among Cubans who work or travel abroad, doctors, sports, players, for example, is actually quite low. Yet, if Cuban socialism has survived by combining innovative policies with popular participation and support, as the offer suggests, then what accounts for the seeming abandonment of the revolutionary project by many young people? There are people who came of age during the period upon which the book focuses. We Are Cuba tackles a wide range of subjects, but in many ways, it is a portrait of post-Soviet Cuba as seen from the vantage point of the Cuban state. Many of the sources and voices cited by Yaffe are Cuban diplomats, professionals, government officials. The book offers less insight into how Cubans have experienced the last three decades themselves. Mm. So again, it's a critique territory here. It does, however, contain some important perspectives on Cuba's trajectory from those who support the system. Yaffe could have strengthened the message of her book by interrogating some of the categories it deploys. There are multiple references in the text to a rather amorphous group called the Revolutionary People of Cuba, a label that comes across as passive and formulaic, but the author clearly does not mean it to be either. Cuban society is not static or unchanging, like that of any other country. It is dynamic and complex. Its government has critics and supporters, and not all Cubans are, of course, revolutionary. Treating everyone on the island as if they belong to a single revolutionary monolith flattens real stories of hardship. The Cuban government is now trying to figure out how to respond to the new demands of a vibrant civil society. One that's very, very diverse because of all the participa participation. Civil society whose members are not necessarily committed, less committed or less socialist in their outlook. Towards the end of 2020, for example, there were protests against the detention of the rapper Dennis Solis by several hundred artists and intellectuals. Some oppose the Cuban system outright, while others want the system to be reformed, retaining a commitment to socialism while ending what they view as, usually, arbitrary detention and censorship. So there's a road ahead. Yeah, so I'll cut myself that off. On the subject of socialist states, not really from the perspective of a state, of course, it's actually from an odd place, considering what the narrative is. Uh, so now, moving on to China the other big baddie, or whatever. But uh, the way it looks like, um, I'm always thinking back to a line in the Looper sci-fi movie involving with time travel in it, where um character played by Goldman, you know, it's, uh, he's from the future, and he's kind of managing the affairs of this uh, these mobsters and uh, these gunmen. And, you know, and the guy's about to retire, or basically be done with the life, and he says, like, you should go to China. I'm like, I don't know, I'm thinking of going somewhere else, maybe Florida. And like, and he says, no, I'm from the future, and I'm telling you to go to China. <laughs> I, I really uh, like that line, and I think of it every time I see headlines or evidence that, you know, while China is building out its industry, so much so that it's investing in building infrastructure in other countries, so that it can, it's because it's not enough to just have all of your industry. You need customers. You need ways of getting your goods to markets. And I don't know if, if the U.S. ever did this. Uh, I suppose the Marshall Plan was a form of it. The China, China's doing their own Marshall Plan, in a way. And I feel it won't be long. I don't, don't, don't put a year on it, but... There may be come a day where 
or maybe I saw a headline. Maybe I saw something with like, maybe the U.S. should get on the Belt and Road Initiative. Because at this point, with the bottlenecks that we have in our supply chains, it's like China should be investing infrastructure money in us, like in the U.S. I mean, if the American government can't put out a reasonable, full, expansive infrastructure bill, which Build Back Better is not, it will build some things, it is doing some work, but not nearly enough. In some areas, it's only doing a quarter of the work, which is sometimes worse than nothing. You know, or it's just you're not solving the problem. You can't cross a river on one quarter of a bridge. And while we are investing money by this, by we, I mean our government, a quarter of what we need to, you know, China China's doing the full thing. So anyway, but that, that that's just my thought that I want to get out there. But this article I have in front of me is from the Progressive Magazine. I don't, when I think of the Progressive Magazine, I don't think this is where I go for leftist politics. It's where other people consider, like, where they get their leftist politics. But to me, it's it's progressive is, is halfway between a moderate Dem and a Bernie, a Bernie-crat, or a Democrat socialist. Progressive is used as a catch-all term for any kind of lefty. Green Party uses it like, we're looking for progressives to run the Green Party. I don't really like that phrase. It's still used pretty frequently. Like, it, it's a carryover from the aughts, where you couldn't identify as liberal, you couldn't definitely couldn't identify as a leftist. But you could still say you're a progressive. I don't know why. But the article is a foreign correspondent from their foreign correspondent. What's really going on with China's Uyghurs? So this is sort of, I don't want, it shouldn't be, of course, nothing is qu- quite the last word. But um, I want to revisit this topic yet again, because the last few times I have, it's usually from a disparaging point of view of the Chinese state and what they're doing. I do that because, yes, uh, what they do is pretty despotic at times. It's authoritarian. It's a big bad. It's a big state. Statist. Uh, But I'm not calling it authoritarian. It's centralizing. And lacks that participation, mass participation in civil society that Cuba does. But of course, these are, it is not fair to compare the giant super state that China is to uh, the island of Cuba. So in the, in the issue of fairness, I suppose, this is what, why I'm reading this, but I also found it interesting as well, to walk a middle path to acknowledge that, well, I'll just read this and it will speak for itself. What I like about some of the articles I pick out is that it expresses all the things that I want to get out, but would need to write myself. <laughs> so this is written by a Reese Erglich. Uh, experts say U.S. officials are seeking enemies, not the truth. In the final days of the Trump administration, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo denounced China for carrying out genocide against its Uyghur minority. He accused the Communist Party of China of engaging in forced assimilation and other crimes, providing a laundry list of alleged offenses, but no proof. Now, I'm reading this also, not because I'm cheerleading uh, the Chinese government as much, uh, though I've done that in other ways, (laughs) other times. It's all contextual with me. I'm reading this to point out that when it comes to U.S. war propaganda and or, or 
U.S. media in general, regardless of how independent or corporate it is, there is a something a tendency of sensationalization and exaggeration when it comes to our perceived rivals, combatants slash you know rival powers. In our current world, that list of rival powers to U.S. hegemony is increasing. Antony Blinken, Biden's Secretary of State, told a Senate committee that he agreed China was engaged in genocide. So there's some another thing that didn't change between Biden and Trump. But Zhu uh, Sun Tzu, an associate professor of economics at John Jay College, this is American, but obviously Chinese name, says politicians are seeking scapegoats for serious ec U.S. economic and other problems. Creating or exaggerating human rights violations is one way to play the China card, tells me in a phone interview. Now, he uses him as his primary source of the expert, but again, he's associate professor of economics John Jay College in New York. So it's not like he's on the ground in Xinjiang. But still, well-read people who research these things, and obviously their research, they are talking to people on the ground as well. That's I'm just getting that aside. That like, I'm not taking this. I'm taking it with a grain of salt, too. So there is bipartisan support to create an outside enemy, he says. In 2008, on assignment, from the San Fran Chronicle, I reported, this is um, Reese speaking, I reported from Xinjiang itself, the predominantly Uyghur province. It sits in China's far northwest. Uyghurs are ethnically listed, linked to Turks, and have their own language and culture separate from Chinese dominant Han nationality. But even dominant doesn't mean majority even. But a few years prior to my trip, two terrorist groups had murdered civilians in knife and bombing attacks. These groups call for independence of East Turkestan and the expulsion of Han Chinese. The groups distorted Islam to justify their actions. You know, they were Habis or jihadists, whatever. But that's uh, improper to call them jihadists, but what Habis? Uh, so here's the name for you. Abdurrahmanu Haksim Aj, then Vice Director of Zhejiang's Public Security Bureau, Explain the difficulty of combating religion-based terrorism. Quoting him, The terrorists are small in number, but the religious followers are big in number, he told me. They are use religion to deceive a small group of people and advocate holy war. China subsequently faced serious attacks on civilians and police officers. In 2009, in the provisional capital of Yunqui, Uyghurs and Han riots killed 197 people, injuring 1,700 in 2014, the Turk Turkestan Islamic Party, a separatist group, gave its support to the attack on civilians at the Kuming railway station, killing 31 and injuring 140. Uh, Kuming is located is a is in a major city in a more central province in China. Today, extremists have allied with international terrorist groups. Roughly 5,000 Uyghurs are fighting alongside other Islamists in rebel-controlled Syria. They live in an area under the control of infamous warlord Abdul Muhammad al-Jamani, according to Marco Camillas, formerly Italy's special envoy for Syria. Chinese authorities worry that the fighters will return to China and apply their military skills. China faces a difficult question, then. How can it combat a ruthless minority of militants while not alienating a larger Muslim community? 
We all know how the U.S. responded to the attacks of 9-11, arresting nearly 2,000 Arabs and Muslims on phony charges, none of whom were connected to the 9-11 attacks. Now, by the way, they weren't just arrested, some were uh, detained indefinitely or detained for many years. Some without trial or waiting for trial. Some were sent to Guantanamo, meaning if set up black, uh, secret black sites to house kidnapped and tortured suspects, create the Guantanamo concentration camp to hold and torture prisoners. The FBI infiltrated mocks, sowed fear and anger among Muslims who had no ties to terrorist groups. China, in contrast, set up education training centers aimed at convincing Uyghurs not to support extremism. Though, as covered um, in a previous show, from the Indian perspective, uh, their rhetoric about this was, well, he, he does he does ignore this. He, he does ignore the abuses that occurred in that, in some ways, you know, this use uh, attendance to these education and training centers were uh, was not so voluntary uh, the centers were supposed to teach mandarin and job skills numerous human rights groups accused the centers of condoning rape torture and forced labor bringing people in the large centers separated from family and friends alienated many Uyghurs. building a training center is not the ideal way of doing this job says china expert Zhu. so he isn't just a china cheerleader either he says community-based education would have been better. Community schools, social networks, and classes in mosques would have been far more effective in his view. So, talking about what China actually should do, which is what many of these outlets and many of these commentaries about China and the Uyghur situation or the Uyghur genocide do not point out. They simply say, China should just stop what they're doing. They should stop all this governing that they do, <laughs> is essentially what I hear. In my opinion, Chinese authorities make mistakes and engage in human rights abuses. Some people were sent to the centers without justification. Others were held too long. Overly zealous guards beat detainees. But Washington intentionally exaggerates conditions in the centers of how many people were held. Washington claims Beijing at one time held a million or more people in internment camps. But an investigation article in the Gray Zone exposed the origins of that number. Them's bunk. The United Nations Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination received a 2018 report claiming a total of 1 million Uyghurs were sent to re-education camps. Quoting, uh, those was in scare quotes. But the figure was based on interviews with eight people. There was no actual count of detainees. Similarly, Washington offers no credible proof of genocide. If, as Pameo claims, China has engaged in forced assimilation and eventual erasure of a vulnerable ethnic and religious minority group. Going Pomeo here, the bastard. There should be a decrease in the Uyghur population and increase in Han. This is if, you know, the claims of genocide are true. But really, it's actually been the opposite. According to a chapter in an upcoming book, Sanctions as War, Zhu notes that from 2010 to 2018, the Uyghur population increased 25%, while the Han population grew too. There is no evidence that China is trying to erase any ethnic or religious group, she says in her interview. It is ironic that the U.S. government, which has an actual record of forced assimilation and erasure, should accuse China of this. Under Chinese law, Uyghurs and other minority nationalities enjoy some, or, you know, I put in the word some, autonomy for the country's political system. For example, they can enroll in schools taught in their native language and receive preferential treatment in college admissions. According, uh, however, according to Zhu, since, um, as I, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, 
But since China adopted the market economy in the 1980s, Beijing has emphasized national unity. Han Chavinists, so that's the particular faction of the Chinese government that should be denigrated and criticized and opposed. Because with me, it isn't to say, I want, you know, I oppose this government or I oppose this state. It's more like, what about this state and the people in it? Because usually, you know, states and societies are made up of factions. Just as how it's like, it's really silly just to say, I hate the U.S. government. I mean, if you're, say, a partisan thinking person, like, no, you hate the Republicans or you hate the Democrats. That's a faction of government. You want one faction to be in power and another not to be. So in the case of China, I would say I condemn Han Chavinists in the Chinese government. Instead, of, I will say that instead of saying what I could say or what many other Americans say, which is I condemn the Chinese government for the Uyghur genocide. I condemn Han Chavinists for the abuses and the overzealous nature of community education and outreach and whatever that is a good idea, but you know, not practiced that well when it's done by nationalists. It should be done by, in the spirit of internationalism and respect for autonomy. So Han China, okay, so, you know, so Han China stressed the importance of everyone speaking a common language, saying if you don't speak Chinese, you're not Chinese. Doesn't, doesn't that sound familiar? We all need to speak English, no Spanish. Han Chavinism is a problem, he says. Chinese speakers tend to get the best jobs and own the most profitable private companies. Market economy pushes people to Han culture. So to me, the same thing occurs with um, American capitalism, that a market economy pushes people towards conformity. Conformity with WASP or whiteness, however you feel what defines that. There have been no terrorist attacks in Zhejiang since 2017, though. So it seems like whatever they did worked, and they didn't wipe out the Uyghurs. So the government crackdown has partially succeeded, and Uyghurs are tired of extremist attacks. At the same time, some Uyghurs feel alienated from the government because of this crackdown. Right? Of course. So the U.S., France, Britain, and many other countries fear terrorist attacks even when none have occurred in recent years. They do everything possible to prevent Mideast extremist fighters from returning home. China is no different. So uh, Reese uh, Ehrlich is a freelance journalist, nationally distributed column. Foreign correspondent appears every two weeks here in the Progressive Magazine. But I did want to cover this article. Who wrote this? It's one of those ML blogs that I kind of go to. Oh, you know what? I think it's a more it's a private blog, but I know the writer is an ML, Marxist-Leninist. But the article has um, a title and a point of view that I kind of wanted to share as well. Something to think about as you're watching the news about Ukraine and uh, say China slash Russia trying to move away from the dollar and other things like that. So the title is, and this was published in the last summer of last year. So, no, not last year, 2020. So, again, <laughs> to repeat, I'm covering all the articles that I basically had in my folders for, you know, last three years. <laughs> and haven't had a sensible opportunity to read them. Now, with, uh, quote-unquote, you know, almost World War III kicking off, or happening, now's a good time to read this. But it's, it, it's something to keep in mind for me, 
that you know I'm reading things like written three years ago but hit home now or in the next year our perspectives seem wacky the perspectives of ultra leftists or Marxist Leninists or other types of leftists anarchists included but they're usually right about things like years in advance like they say here's what's happening and here's what we can expect and they're usually right this is something I noticed in college and a little bit before college when I was like getting tired of John Stewart's point of view. Not that I don't enjoy John Stewart. I've actually at work been listening to his new podcast that he's been doing where it's kind of a back and forth where he does 10 minute segment like he used to do on the daily show where it's like, you know, he does like a third of the show and then He'll do something that he could, couldn't do on network TV, which is I will now talk to an expert about the subject I make, made jokes about for a half an hour to an hour to get a full understanding of it, to do what I couldn't do in the interviews on the show or when they switched to online and they, they could do extended interviews or they could post the full interview online, which I was very thankful for back in my college years because I was just so under, you know, the constraints of, of network mass media, of the half hour, the five minute interview. It was just so short to have the full one, which is like sometimes a half an hour long, really great. Anyway, now he does that as a matter of course on his show. But the thing about Jon Stewart is he's smart. He doesn't give himself enough credit. He's just almost a socialist. He's just so really close, but he can't let go of this bias that there needs to be a market economy or there needs to be, well, or a liberal market economy. Like There's just this liberalism that's like, we won't have any autonomy or freedom if things are centralized or if we have planning, economic or otherwise. Or that if you go to economic planning, you're going to have social planning. And then the chauvinists will be in charge, forcing everyone to speak the same and act the same. And, and if you don't want to, you go to the re-education camp, right? But it's possible, not only possible, probable, necessary, that we have central planning, or we have you know, state, or government, or any kind of government, and that doesn't have to be run, or doesn't include, it doesn't, I mean, anarchists would argue that it, it will do this. But I think Cuba shows that you can have autonomy and diversity and have a centralized government that can then decentralize. And it can wax and wane based on if there's a crisis or not. And we are very much in a freaking crisis. Which is why it kind of really frustrates me that even when the world's burning down, burning around us, my fellow leftists will still argue about how we absolutely still need to maintain this personal autonomy rights perspective. And that we can never actually do collective action where... One subsumes oneself to a collective effort or collective politics or collective project. It still has to be like, well, I have to still have a voice. Of course you'll have a voice. Somebody was paying attention. I watched it on the TV. Machine guns. Fire towards the ground. I watched the people run. Helicopter gunship. Strafing the street I watched them lining up the bodies In the Baghdad heat 
They say these leaks had consequences And I must agree When I saw them fire on the children It affected me I thought what if I were wearing The other shoe If I had a hammer What would I do? I am just a person Like anyone I am just another Mother's son I have no special powers I cannot fly Not like that helicopter gunship Up in the sky Sending all those bullets All around To the journalists and children On the ground I am just one man That's very true But if I had a hammer What would I do? seems so obvious there are people down there and right here in Queensland there's an army base and there's a helicopter gunship just sitting in place there's a time for watching there's a time to act it's just gonna kill more children If it remains intact I am just one person But you are two If you had a hammer What would you do? If you had a hammer What would you do? Okay, we still have way too much to read. Um, But here it is. The more U.S. imperialism declines, the closer the world comes to a new wave of socialist revolutions. Pretty optimistic title. I I give you that. Um, I could say it's more accurate to say that the more it declines, the more of a multipolar, the more we will have the uh, opportunities for collective progressive politics in the world. Not just in America, of course. We're, we're talking about global politics for this show. Global capitalism is a vast, multifaceted machine, which is so widespread that it can continue to function even if it loses many territories that it used to be able to exploit. Multinational corporations can cope with the socialist revolutions in Cuba, Korea, and elsewhere because these corners of the globe aren't essential for maintaining a rising rate of profit for capitalists. Plutocrats will, of course, do all they can to isolate and sabotage these anti-imperialist countries, with machines core can keep running. Now, though, the U.S.-centered corporatocracy is growing alarmed because the factors are converging to dramatically shift the balance of global control over capital. Sure, 
Last year, the corporatocracy was able to regain control over one chunk of territory, overthrowing the Bolivian socialist president, Evo Morales. Now, this is, of course, this is outdated because he's been reelected. He's back in power, which is kind of a point in the favor of this article that uh, the CIA can try as it might uh, or forces of reaction, but uh, they're, they're a lot weaker than they were 30 years ago. This crisis comes from the shifting of world power towards America's rival superpowers, development which crept up on the empire through the 2010s before resulting in a new Cold War, one that's now having the effect of further weakening Washington's global influence. The U.S. responded to China's rise not with pragmatic diplomacy, but with an increasing campaign belligerence that began with Obama's quote-unquote pivot to Asia. Consequently, the pivot to Asia backfired. China's recent Hong Kong security law has shrunk U.S. opportunities for waging hybrid warfare against China, which is the, or rather, the strife was about the security law. So, sound familiar? You know, backfire. We, we just go, we go, we go ham, we go hard, <laughs> we go strong, strong front, peace through strength, and it backfires. The U.S. responded to Russia's rise with an ever-expanding sanctions and aggressive military buildup, which has harmed the power of U.S. currency and strengthens Russian military alliance with China. In its attempts to strong-arm these growing superpowers into submission, the empire is making itself more internally isolated, sorry, internationally isolated, and thus less able to retain its waning influence elsewhere. This was written in 2020. After this point, the main thing that the empire can do is engage in various acts of terrorism and disinformation. The economic warfare against Hong Kong in response to China's security law, color revolution that the U.S. is attempting in China, Thailand, Trump's plans to enact further violence in Venezuela, and ever-tightening sanctions, and the propagation of fraudulent stories about Chinese human rights abuses, are all efforts to compensate for the losses of the empire is experiencing. Momentarily regaining of one neocolonial outpost in South America, and it very much was momentary, speaking of Bolivia, can make up for the global economic and geopolitical shift in China's favor, which is rapidly accelerating during COVID. Which is where all the conspiracies of like, uh, Chinese flu, they put it out on purpose to weaken us. No, we were weakening before. COVID. Okay. All of this was happening in, in before COVID too. Okay. It's, it, it's, it's a occurrence of history. It's a pattern. It's continuous. Do not need a specific plan of action occurring at one particular time. So the more this process of imperial weakening continues, the closer the world comes to an outcome that would be truly catastrophic for plutocrats. New socialist revolutions, which is very optimistic. I'm not so sure about that, but we can hope. Civilization has been slowly building towards such an event throughout the entire last half century. You know, all this pressure, capitalist exploitation, something's got to give. So wherein um, global wealth inequality has steadily risen amid intensifying neocolonialism and neoliberal ravaging of the world's workers, peoples. Now, as U.S. and NATO imperialism implodes, and you could say that Ukraine situation is like the last squeeze, you know, the, the, the we gotta, you know, ugh. put put that in the Ukraine context. 
more potential is opening up for the next series of proletarian overthrows to happen. One of the ways this geopolitical shift is creating such a heightened chance for class revolt involves the reversal of the process of neocolonialism, which China has something to do with. China's rise and the subsequent of the Pelton Road Initiative. If you don't know, it's that China is pumping money into other countries to build ports, railways, um, canals, canals, investing in other countries so that global trade is smoother and that mostly so that these other areas, regions, can accept more Chinese goods. At the moment, they have bottleneck in how much they can buy from China. In order to keep the export economy going, they have to keep being able to export more, which of course is unsustainable itself, but I believe the Communist Party there has kind of a plan of like, we're gonna do this for the next 20 years, and then we'll slowly ramp down, you know, into something else. We'll transition, you know, but this is what we're doing now. We're the world's factory, <laughs> for better or worse. As the Marxist writer, so as the Marxist writer, Salkat Bakhlashkara uh, has concluded about how China's economic policies will re achieve a reversal of colonialism's legacy. So the Belt and Road Initiative is best understood as the antithesis of colonialism. While colonialism was a Western response to its trade deficit with Asian kingdoms and also to the supremacy of the Asian mode of production over Western pre-industrial revolution era production, the Belt and Road is the response of trade surplus China to the fact that the U.S. share of global GDP is becoming too small to generate demand for Chinese products. So pretty much the U.S. cannot buy enough Chinese crap in Walmart. We can't, because of our wages, our wages are being too low. We can't buy enough from Walmart to fill the orders for the Chinese factories. So... They must invest around the world in developing countries, which will give Chinese products markets simultaneously. While colonialism is associated with the decline of Asia, the Belt and Road is about sharing resources of a rising China with the rest of the world. This is a completely different narrative than I find on the rest of uh, leftist uh, internet, which still speaks of China as just another imperialism, or Russia, Russia's actions as just another imperialism. I mean, there's still capitalism at work here, yeah, but it's really silly to me to just consider it all to be equivalent. If a large portion, back to the text, if a large portion of the subjugated nations gain economic independence from the U.S., they'll have greater potential to develop towards socialism. The IMF, the World Bank, multinational corporations based in America, and the political police force, the CIA, have long defined the affairs of the third world and the global south. But if the economic balance gets tipped away from the favor of American, uh, American and European imperialists, this leash that the imperialists have on these nations will um, loosen, and they'll gain a greater ability to move beyond capitalism. Faced with this prospect of losing their economic hegemony over the globe, the Washington imperialists are turning toward coup attempts, violent destabilization efforts, you know, pumping in weapons to areas where there's war or potential war, intensified economic warfare, and threats of invasions, invasion against disobedient nations. Yet like, the, uh, yet like is always the case with declining empires when they resort to aggressive moves, 
campaign of belligerence is backfiring. In addition to the ways it's isolating the U.S., strengthening allyship of America's rivals, it's making the contradictions of imperialism so pronounced they can be easily, very easily used to describe the U.S. and to radicalize others. What's happening now resembles what Stalin described happened during the initial imperialist war against the Soviet Union. Uh, quoting him, the policy of open intervention failed because of the growth of the revolutionary movement in Europe, because of the sympathy entertained by workers of all countries for our project of the Soviet Russia. That policy was initialized to the fullest by revolutionary socialism to expose this. Okay. So these are the advantages that the decline of the American power has given us modern revolutionary socialists. Overall diminishing economic control of imperialists. Even though it's in some, in some ways, in articles and media, it seems like it's stronger than ever. But there's cracks, and it's never as strong as it looks like or the control is never as total. The poor and indigenous Bolivians who are being oppressed by the Washington stalled regime have uh, given us, they got their country back, by the way. They, they, they reelected um, Morales, they, they stopped the coup, pretty much. The coup was temporary. So um, if these kinds of struggles escalate enough, the regime will be overthrown, which is what? The Bolivia will have a socialist revolution. We in the Marxist-Leninist and anti-colonial movements need to work to make such a scenario reality in each of the capitalist countries that we live in. Now, of course, that wasn't resolved with full revolution, but there was a mobilization of social movements to get a new election and, re uh, and get Maduro, uh, Morales, uh, or rather uh, Morales, a uh, socialist government back in. So liberal democracy, I guess, worked. But it took a mass mobilization of social movements and lefties, various ways, to make that happen. But the fact that it wasn't prevented kind of shows that the, you know, the CIA keeps losing its touch. Now, I think liberals would say, oh, this is because of the Trump presidency. Now, it's a Biden presidency. It'll be competent. <laughs> um, I guess it seems competent right now if Ukraine seems things are seem to be in the US's favor in some ways more on that as we go forward with the rest of the readings as i now completely shift over to the ukrainian situation uh first a short bit from al jazeera so this isn't like a full ultra leftist take or eco socialist take this is just a kind of general um progressive slash rational take or at least a, a well-educated, you know, moderate take. This one is, is Putin's gamble on Ukraine rational? So as any um, materialist will tell you, um, well, good materialist will tell you, it's really annoying to pathologize or psychoanalyze world or any kind of political event. It's a flaw of liberal or quote-unquote, woke politics, to make everything about psychology. Now, it's not woke politics, sorry. Woke politics is about making a systemic critique kind of talk. So, not just to say, we just need sane people at the heads of government. Only sane people will not invade others. That's the kind of statement being made. It's really, really um, mistaken. So, anyway. Um, from a, a Western-looking or 
liberal leaning uh, kind of perspective here. The invasion can bring the downfall of Putin's regime, but it can also give him exactly what he wants. So written by a Leonold Rezignang, this is published by Al Jazeera in the opinion section uh, back in uh, towards the end of February last month. Early in the morning of February 24th, under the orders of Putin, Russia launched a full-out invasion of Ukraine. The Russian Air Force started striking military targets all around the country and advanced occupation forces across the border to the north and south. What seemed unimaginable to many Russian experts, including myself just a day ago, is now a reality the world will need to accept and cope with. On the face of it, Putin, Putin's move appears irrational. And on most network TV, it's all about, like, Putin's crazy, he's... Uh, you can, he's crazy, and you can't. And you can't make a deal with him. You can't. Why would we ever want to talk to a madman? <laughs> he's he's a criminal. Uh, he's um. It's it's like I'm in Team America World Police World. Nine post nine eleven vibes, as Hassan Piker put it. So uh, it's a crime against Ukraine, a brazen violation of international law. It will mark a dark chapter in Russia's history and inflict costs on Russia that could prove to be heavy enough to turn the Russian people against their president. The Kremlin's rhetoric about Ukraine being a brotherly nation is widely mocked in the West. But this is indeed how most Russians see their neighbor, not for ideological reasons, but because almost all of them have either relatives or friends in the country. Selling this war to Russians will be an uphill task for Putin, nothing like the occupation of Korea, which was nearly bloodless, with a clear majority of locals welcoming the change of flag. Today, Ukrainians seem poised to put up a real fight, which means a protracted conflict with multiple casualties on all sides. Justifying the loss of income and savings Russians will experience because of the expected Western sanctions will be similarly difficult. This morning, people in Moscow were reportedly being queuing at cash machines dispensing foreign currency and anticipating the ruble's collapse. For the more inevitable isolation from the West is going to be a nightmare not only for liberal intelligentsia, but also for a large port of their political and business elite. You know, the globalists. Or the Russian oligarchs. Uh, if all these predictions prove correct and this war results in Putin's fall, many in Ukraine and the West will say it was worth the sacrifice. But what if Putin is not being irrational? What if those who continue to think that he is a naive idealist? What if Ukraine completely surrenders after a few days? Well, that didn't happen. The Russian economy sustains Western sanctions without breaking a sweat, and Russians continue to go about their lives. Okay, well, that's completely out the window. But if that turns out to be the case, we will find ourselves in a darker, more sinister world where aggression and cruelty is seen as a prerequisite for success on an international arena. We'll soon find out whether Putin is rational or not. But there's also uh, Zelensky's gamble. Will it play? How will it play out? We also soon find out whether Ukrainian. So this is at the you know beginning of hostilities. So obviously we have the benefits of foresight, but we're still in the middle of the war. So so did he do the right thing in choosing to put up a fight rather than avoid collusion or accepting his country's neutral status? You know because being neutral is as bad as surrendering or agreeing to implement the Minsk agreements, as Russia demanded prior to the invasion. You know, you made an, invasion, you made an agreement. Could you hold to it? <laughs> That's, that was the demand. So we do not know how all of this will end, but we do know that the results of a very likely Ukrainian defeat will be infinitely more dramatic, drastic than what Russian demands envisioned just a few days ago.
So Nessie def um, definitely felt the support of Ukrainian society when he made the call, but perhaps he also felt an urge to present himself as a truly tough politician in a situation where both the Kremlin and the domestic opposition pictured him, a former comedian, as a spineless political amateur. I mean, this is what his opposition says of him. That urge uh, perhaps incentivized him to take an untenable risk. So we will soon find out a bit much later when classified documents will be put into the public domain, what role Ukraine's Western allies played in him making this decision, whether they encouraged him to resist Putin with all means available or were nudging him towards compromise but failed to overcome his stubborn resolve. Oh yeah, that's totally what happened. I say with sarcasm. While only time will tell whether this escalation will bring Putin and Zaleski, there will be some immediate lessons to learn, particularly lessons about Washington's approach to Russia. The tragic events underway in Ukraine should reinvigorate the discussion on the wisdom of Western and specifically American policies regarding Russia and the remainder of the USSR in the last 30 years. How wise was it to expand NATO and the EU towards Russia's borders, isolating Russia from its closest neighbors, breaking the natural flow of post-Soviet societies with hard borders and trade barriers? Borders are bad, folks. The policy was aimed at preventing a new aggressive monster state, a USSR II, from rising from the ruins. But isn't this exactly what's happening now? Wouldn't it have been much wiser to prioritize integrating Russia, a nuclear power, into the West when the country was ripe and ready for it, rather than brushing it off as a largely irrelevant declining power, or attempting to keep it weak. Various uh, brings to mind a nice little quotable that um, the only sure way of destroying one's enemy is to make them your friends. Various Russian officials warned the West back in the 90s that the efforts to isolate and sideline Russia would result in the rise of nationalist and autocratic forces in the country. Indeed, Putin himself recalled in one of his latest speeches how he once asked President Clinton whether Russia could also join NATO, but did not get an answer. So it wasn't a promise, but it was just kind of like, you know, they were, he was open to it. Could have talked about it. Back in 2000, when he was first elected in the still Democratic elections, if you can call them that, I wouldn't. Putin was seen as a liberal and tacitly supported by the West against his more conservative rivals. A man without real political principles, just hungry for power, Putin could have become a perfect Eurocrat. Hasn't the West, with its petrol fear of Russia, grown its own Frankenstein? Even now, at the point of collusion, there's collision, the West does not have a vision for post-Putin Russia, which could motivate Russians to change their politics in the country. Indeed, for many of the, in the hawkish circles, an aggressive and isolated Russia is a milking cow that secures their salaries and lucrative contracts. Russian society is responsible for Ukraine's current tragedy and for allowing Putin to usurp power. But this war, with its many dire consequences that will emerge in the coming days and weeks, months, is in itself a punishment for Russians. Now all efforts should focus on finding a way to build united Europe with a democratic, post-Putinist Russia as an integral part. Because there is an opposition there, or there is a... Well, you know, it's not, it's not all Putin all the time. Um, but he is in complete power right now. Such is autocracy. But I want to I wanna hold on that, like, you know, true 
solution to these crises is, is a united Europe, a united world, not one separated into military camps, uh, military alliances based on competing ideologies. You have to drop this fear of other ideologies. They're not like us. Like the, the, the reactionaries, conservatives, I, you know, it's just Ben Shapiro talking about like, you know, China, we, we have to, you know, we keep thinking all these other people and all these other countries want the same things we do. Well, I guess they don't want a Hummer in a suburb, but, the, but he was talking about security, basic, you know, goods and education and culture and autonomy. And it's like, you know, not everyone wants that. No, everyone actually does want that. There's just a certain priorities of I need a living first. And then once I'm middle class, then I will want autonomy. And that's kind of what's kind of struggling. That's the kind of conflict within China. That, you know, you have a growing, ever-growing middle class there. And eventually they'll push back and for liberal culture. And, and whatever. So, so that's one side of it. Um, general background. I, it's, it's a nice little overview of the situation. Still kind of putting it things in a very snapshot, like just looking at the Russian invasion, uh, which I have a much more wider view by the end of this. Okay. That's the last one. That's the last one. Um, or do I, no, no, no. I do want to, I do want to read this one next. So this is from a Marxist Review Online. So let's hear from the ultra-left point of view. I think there's a place for ultra-leftists. Um, online, uh, in my circles, there's a real fondness of bashing ultra-leftists. Um, the names that come to mind is a guy named Caleb Maupin and Peter Coffin, uh, who have kind of teamed up. Uh, and there's some other streamers and online personalities they just held a conference at a place they call the, uh, or an organization, I guess this is their organization now. They're calling it the Center for Political Innovation. <laughs> so they're not including any Marxist, socialist, or revolution words in the title of it. Don't know if I like that or not. And there's a lot about these figures that are insufferable. But I believe they have a place in left, they have a I think they have, they have something to contribute because I've been listening to their conversations. I'm this thing I'm about to read kind of is where, like, is their like their takes, but there are these streamers with basically anarchist politics that are just like fuming, foaming at the mouth. It's their style of, it's the show they put on about how outrageous these takes are about Ukraine, which I'll now relate for your listening pleasure. But I think it's insanely, uh, well, it's very important. And I would not be able to make sense of things without it, actually. Otherwise, you, you get siloed into particular liberal status quo supporting positions on the subject. That like almost jingoistic and nationalistic to a T for America, like American exceptionalism. That like, you know, we're the free country, Russia isn't, which can be in some ways true. But I'm just saying, like, well, it's usually the role of leftists online right now to, to the very least point out that for the, all the reasons that what Russia has done is bad, what America does is bad in, in, with Iraq. 
or the same way that the war in Iraq was bad, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is bad. But this article points out that the situation is very different. They're not; These are not one-to-one comparisons. Very little in geopolitics or any politics is a one-to-one, a one-to-one comparison. It's really, it's not dangerous, but it's a, you make easy mistakes. It causes a lot of confusion. Really cringy arguments. By arguments, I don't mean arguments in like singular. I mean the arguments between people are strained and circular and hard to listen to because they're always just making these terrible comparisons one thing to another. So this is a Marxist review online and the article is written by a presenda. Maybe that's just a general boilerplate name. When did Ukraine war begin? This was published last week, March 8th, 2022. The conception that the war started on February 24th of this year is like viewing the invasion by the U.S. and its allies of Normandy in June 1944 against the sovereign and democratic Vichy French as the start of World War II. Never mind that the Vichy government was a puppet of the Nazis, that the opportunities to negotiate had long been rejected, that the war had been raging for years, and that the only option for stopping the Nazis was a military solution. Let's talk about the U.S. Imperial Army. NATO, it should be understood, is an army in the service of the U.S. Empire. Viewing it simply as an alliance of nominally sovereign entities obscures that it is commanded as a tool of U.S. foreign policy in its stated quest of world domination. That is, the term full-spectrum dominance. Now, I have a book on my shelf called Full-Spectrum Resistance. Uh, so the alliance members must fully integrate their militaries under that command along with purchasing eh, U.S. war equipment and offering up their own citizens as troops. After the implosion of the Soviet Union and the supposed end of the first Cold War, instead of NATO being disbanded, the opposite occurred. There was no peace dividend, no honoring of a promise that NATO would not expand. Instead, NATO stampeded east towards the borders of the Russian Federation, adding 14 new members of former USSR republics and allies. Even before the 2014 coup, the U.S. fatal decision in 2006 to draw Ukraine into NATO posed an existential threat to Russia, which I think is an exaggeration. But, but also not. (laughs) Um, I I think saying something is an existential threat to, I mean, to the Russian state, to the Russian people. But I want to take a moment to explain that I do not, I say without reservation, the 2014 coup. Because we have full receipts and evidence, uh, at least that I've seen and read and others have um, collaborated, or that it's it's just open public knowledge, uh, that, that the... In 2014, there was a change in the Ukrainian government. The narrative is such that the government was pro-Russian because they're brotherly nations. They're neighbors. And if you're going to choose between the large neighbor next to you or the far neighbor across the ocean, the U.S., or the EU, I guess. But yeah, they had a choice to make back in the early 
2010s, you know? Are they going to be a expiring EU and NATO member? Or are they in, you know, what sphere, sphere of influence are they in? So there's been this competition of what kind of government in Ukraine, like, where, where are they leaning towards? And, of course, it's really, like, up in the air always because the Ukrainian people themselves are not, it's not a settled question. So, but you can't let democracy reign. You can't let the people of Ukraine sort out this problem, no matter how long it takes, because it is a seriously complex problem of a question of what sphere of influence are they in, or could they actually be neutral? Uh, no, the, the decision has to be taken out of their hands. And it was in 2014 uh, with the Obama State Department basically intervening uh, with the main square, and that's usually called a color revolution. The government changed from something that was leaning towards pro-Russian to now pro-American. And so... This recent regime change war is to flip things back to a pro-Russian government. That's the, you know, the particular maximum goal of the of the Russian military operations, also known as invasion. <laughs> so, to uh, let's see. Repeat the paragraph. Even before the 2014 coup, the U.S.'s faithful decision in 2016 to draw Ukraine into NATO posed an existential threat to Russia. By December of 2021, according to RealPolitik, international relations scholar John Mearsheimer, a U.S.-armed Ukraine had become a de facto member of NATO, crossing a red line for Russia. Mearsheimer concludes, the West bears primary responsibility for what is happening. Failure of peaceful negotiations. Because it's really simplistic, lazy, and to me it's immature to say Putin doesn't want peace. All negotiations have, you know, it's, it's, just, it's, it's just such a armchair strategist kind of take to say that like negotiations, like you, can, you can't negotiate with this person. You can't negotiate with the bad guys can't negotiate with terrorists. Can't negotiate with freedom fighters. You know, can't negotiate. You can, you know, founding fathers. The only, you know, you can't negotiate with them. You can only hang them. That's what some British PM MPs probably said during the American Revolution. Thankfully, there were enough Whigs to do to say otherwise and negotiate. When you know, when it was clear. That uh, well, the British occupation forces, you know, surrendered at Yorktown, became clear that okay, now we we have to negotiate. So after the uh, okay, speaking before the UN on March second, the Venezuelan representative identified the breach of the Minsk protocols with the encouragement of the U.S. as the precursor of the present crisis in Ukraine. After 2014, uh, the coup or the made in square revolution, whatever you want to call it. The Minsk protocols were an attempt at a peaceful settlement through a ceasefire. Withdrawal of heavy weapons from the front line, release of prisoners of war, constitutional reform in Ukraine, granting self-government to certain areas of Donbass. That's that eastern area. About the size of New Jersey. And restoring control of the state border to the Ukrainian government. Moscow, Kiev, or Kiev, and the Eastern Separatists were all parties to these agreements. 
They made an agreement. Problem solved. The Russian perception of negotiations with the Western Alliance in the run-up to the invasion, as reported by the New York Post, was described using insensitive terminology as like the mute with the deaf by Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov on his meeting with the British counterpart. Note that the New York Post, even in the updated version of the article, refers to Lavrov as the Soviet Foreign Minister, forgetting that the USSR hasn't been around for, they didn't forget, it's intentional. Following the latest round of sweeping U.S.-imposed sanctions on Russia, their foreign ministry announced, we have reached the end line where the point of no return begins. Such sanctions are a form of warfare as deadly as bombs. So the upsides of war for the U.S. and the downsides for everyone else. So this is the opposite of the Al Jazeera piece where it's all about the downsides are just for Russia in particular. War is a great diversion for Joe Biden, whose popularity has slipped due to a lackluster domestic performance. The U.S. empire has much to gain, further unifying NATO under U.S. domination, reducing Russian economic competition in the European energy market, justifying increasing the U.S. war budget, and facilitating sales of war material to NATO vassals. <laughs> That's the decided term of saying that they're vassals, states. <laughs> But, you know, if, um, if you're playing some strategy games like I do, that's what they would be classified as. Autonomous and domestic policy, but non-international space. NATO has dumped over a trillion dollars in arms and facilities into the border countries next to Russia and continues to this day to pour lethal weapons in Ukraine. Or lethal aid, as it's called. The leader of Ukraine's neo-Nazi C-14 recently bragged on YouTube while other voices are censored, quoting him, we are being given so much weaponry, not because of, as some say, the West is helping us, not because it is best for us, but because we perform the tasks set by the West, because we have fun. We have fun killing. Now, that would be one of those um, marginal, uh, marginal groups of neo-Nazis in Ukraine. But, I mean, they're as marginal as, I guess, um, other major players in U.S. politics. They have a significant pull in the government. It's not. It's a non-neo-Nazi government, and it's really dumb to just say, well, they have Jews in the, in the head of government. True. But the government is not just the president. And that's the stupid thing about, like, you know, president as being the face of a country. Regardless. More than 14,000 people have been killed in the eastern Ukraine region of Donbass and war. Okay, so here's the important part. That's not being mentioned very much. So... Since 2014, there's been a guerrilla war being fought between Ukrainian government and militias and the Donbass that, you know, pretty much declare themselves independent or at very least want to maintain autonomy. That's what the agreement called for. But by, you know, it's by Western pressure, the Ukrainian government hasn't held to the agreement. That's the, that's the ultra-left narrative, which I find is supported by, by what I see. Not just what I see today, I'm talking about what I've seen the last eight years. Because I actually, you know, sort of pay attention to national news. And what I know about the, the area in Ukraine over the last, since 2014, you know, cry like, oh, what happened after Main Square? It's been a quote-unquote failed state. You know, this, the, the, the government doesn't have full control of the country. You have these separate regions that have basically been, they've been fighting a civil war. The war, so the, the title of the war is like, when did the war start? The war has been going on 
it's just the Russian war crime is that they have escalated it from being within Ukraine's borders to, well, being country on country, which is a very rare thing. So the facts. More than 14,000 people have been killed in the eastern Ukraine region of Donbass in warfare between ethnic Russians and Ukrainian regular military the Ukrainian regular military units, as well as the right-wing paramilitary units, like the Azov Battalion, in the eight years since the coup. The self-proclaimed, self-titled, People's Republic of Donbass and Lunhask, which I think the facts on the ground is that their government isn't really that great. I mean, but they're also, you know, at war. But it's not it's not the same as Rojava. It'd be nice if they were the same as Rojava, but they're not. They're not. And I think the reporting is that they have their, their share of reactionaries and and, uh, and fash types are, uh, in there as well. So it's one of those, like, there's no good sides. There's no one to really root for, except the general people. But, you know, if this area wants to, you know, more or less is fighting to be autonomous, I, I believe they should be autonomous. And the Minsk Agreement should be followed because that's what it was kind of about. Because these are ethnic Russians. Majority. Any, at any rate, they very much did not vote for the current president, like 95% against. What area of America votes 95% against, like, the other party? They are beleaguered enclaves in the Donbass of largely ethnic Russians seceding from Ukraine and were then recognized by Russia on February 21st. Because up until then, they weren't recognized as being separate. They were still trying to hold to an agreement that, like, well, they're, they're autonomous regions within Ukraine. By the way, by autonomous, it's the same relationship as the states to the federal government. You could say the state you live in, if you're American, is an autonomous region within the United States. It's all, it, ideally, that's all it is. So the semi-governmental... Over 80% U.S. government-funded RAND Corporation's playbook for the U.S. and its allies says it all. Pursue across economic, political, and military areas to overstress, to stress overextended and unbalanced Russia's economy and armed forces and the regime's political standing at home and abroad. So you say Putin's real mistake is playing into U.S. ghouls and Pentagon's hands. But you could say it was, it was a corner he was backed into. This is the closest I get to saying that Putin's or the Russian military's actions are justified. But of course, I will not go that far. No war is justified. Civil war isn't really justified. But here's the thing. Something, something, something I just learned recently. Uh, listening, listen to a lecture about World War One, the big one. What made it so bad was that everyone who took part in it considered themselves to be playing defense. Like, they, their participation in the global conflict was justified because they were being invaded. Even the Germans. Though the Germans, like, they get the blame because they're the ones that made the first aggressive move. That's simplistic because what do you consider an aggressive move? The Russians, before, you know, before they acted and went through you know, invade Belgium, the Russians acted aggressively by putting troops on their border and the Austrian border. And the Austrians acted aggressively in basically, you know, calling for the blank check and German support 
in the actions they were going to take with Serbia. So really, the only real aggressor was the Austrians, and then the Austrian government, monarchy that it was, was also backed in a quarter. What else could they do if they weren't just going to abdicate and say, yeah, we're not going to be a monarchical, feudal empire anymore? <laughs> but that's really the way out, to say, I'm not playing this old game anymore. We're not going to hold to what we are now. We're going to accept the change is not only inevitable, but practical. And change makes. Rather than be backed into a corner. You know, you know, Russia is backed into a corner because of the way their economy works, because of its plutocracy, and the rest. If it wasn't like that, then they wouldn't have to act like the way they do. And the same goes for the U.S. For us. So this conflict could have, and does, have ruinous consequences for the Russian Federation, according to Western sources, and even more people who identify as left in Russia. As a bonus for the U.S., according to Juan Gonzalez, the U.S. National Security Council Senior Director for the Western Hemisphere, the sanctions against Russia are, by design, intended to hurt Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua, are targeted by, all targeted by Washington for regime change, and of course, for Ukrainians of all ethnicities, there are no winning in war. It is difficult to think that other options Russia has to defend itself. Perhaps there are some, but surely they are slim. It should be clear that the U.S. has continually been the aggressor, even if some do not agree with the Russian response. Few don't. Few who do agree with it are, you know, very much lampooned. The ultra-leftists I referred to already. As Phyllis Bennis with the Institute of Policy Studies argues, the U.S. provoked this war. So there's also severing Russia from Europe and spheres of influence and inter-imperialist rivalry, asymmetry of forces. I'm not going to read all of this. Let's, con uh, let's do the conclusion, though, with a Chris Hedges quote. How the war will end. Regardless of how one sides or not in the new Cold War, it is instructive to understand the context of the conflict. This is especially so when views outside the dominant U.S. narrative, such as those of Russian outlets Sputnik and RT that hosted U.S. intellectuals like Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Chris Hedges, are silenced and blackballed. This article addressed how this war began. How it will end, or even if it will end, is another story. The world is spiraling into a new Cold War emanating from a region formerly at peace under socialism. Expressing a view from the standpoint of the Global South, former Brazilian President Luiz Lula da Silva commented, We do not want to be anyone's enemy. We are not interested, nor is the world, in a new Cold War, which is for sure dragging the whole world into a conflict that could put humanity in danger. Well, humanity is in danger. If there is a lesson to be learned, it is that the end of endless war will come with the end of U.S. imperial project that provoked this crisis. Which is a, quite a bit, opt, pretty optimistic. Um, I think most uh, U.S. lefties, as ultra-leftists would call them, all liberals, basically, because they all kind of take the similar position that one imperialism is as bad as another, and that if U.S. imperialism were to end, it would be replaced with China, Sino, Russia imperialism. But that's not the world we live in. We live in a much more multipolar world. You know, Brazil, basically the BRICS, as they're called. 
But if they are a block, it's it's more of an internationalist or globalist block, and that's that's the point. That's that's the actual future. I don't think I, I kind of I can edge towards the optimism of saying that the end of U.S. imperialism will be the end of all imperialism. At the very least, it will be a more balanced world where all the different major players are in fact balancing each other out as far as exploitation is concerned, but it also makes the room for people's movements to do something about all this imperialism, to resist it, to build alternatives. Because it certainly can't happen now, or it happens very, very slowly and uh, in a minimal way. I really want to cover this because obviously it's a it's a local leftist. A letter to the Western left from Kiev. Just uh, also in the last two weeks. And this is published by International Viewpoint. So hopefully I'm bookending with an international's point of view, which is why I must read this. I am writing these lines in Kiev while it is under artillery attack. Under the last minute, I had hoped that Russian troops wouldn't launch a full-scale invasion. Now I can only thank those who leaked the information to the U.S. intelligence services. Even though, as a side, no one particularly believed them because they have such a track record of lying. Or being wrong. Yesterday, I spent half the day considering whether I ought to join a territorial defense unit. During the night that followed, the Ukrainian president... Zayevsky signed a full mobilization order and Russian troops moved in and prepared to encircle Kiev, which made the decision for me. But before taking up my post, I would like to communicate to the Western left what I think about its reaction to Russia's aggression against Ukraine. First of all, I'm thankful to those leftists who are now picketing Russian embassies, even those who took their time to realize Russia was the aggressor in this conflict. So definitely a snot, you know, snipe at what I just read from the Marxist review, who is basically not considering Russia to be the aggressor. Or it's the aggressor in the conflict that's happening right now this month, while over there's a big picture where the US is like always the aggressor. Basically putting people in situations where they have to be the aggressor. I am faithful to politicians who support putting pressure on Russia to stop the invasion and withdraw its troops. And I am thankful to the delegation of British and Welsh MPs, unionists, and activists who came to support us near us in the days before the Russian invasion. I am also thankful to the Ukraine Solidarity Campaign in the UK for its help for many years. This is obviously a UK publication. This article is about the other part of the Western left, those who imagine NATO aggression in Ukraine who could not see Russian aggression, like the New Orleans chapter of the DSA. Or the DSA International Committee, which published a shameful statement, failing to say a critical word against Russia. Which is, again, something I just read. So it isn't totally widespread. I didn't read this DSA statement, but I get where it would, like, why it would choose not to say a critical word against Russia. You don't have to. It's autocracy. It's like, it's... Actually, why would they? Because this... We Americans in the peace movement basically want to end war. If we need to end war, we need to start at home. We need to get America to commit to peace before anyone else can. Or before we, you know, put in the effort to get others to commit to peace. You know, like, maybe it seems isolationist to speak this way, the opposite of internationalist. 
to say like we got to sort things out here in America. We have to have our government doing a negotiations first. Stop sending more weapons in. Or to those who criticize Ukraine for not okay. So, but but again, if you're in Ukraine, you know you want them to actually maintain their territorial sovereignty, the borders, not not uh, recognize autonomous region. So it's coming from that perspective. It's worth respecting. It is must be respected. So, and again, I'm reading this also for balance with all the things that I've read from mostly armchair strategists. Yeah, so this article is about uh, those that have criticized Ukraine for not implementing the Minsk agreements and kept silent about their violations by Russia and the so-called People's Republics, you know, so-called. Or those who exaggerate the influence of the far right in Ukraine, but did not notice the far right in the People's Republics and avoided criticizing Putin's conservative, nationalist, and authoritarian policy. Part of the responsibility for what is happening rests with you. I'm, I don't see how that, I don't see how that's true, but okay. But again, this is a funny article. I, I started out not liking what I was reading, but then the rest is like gold. But for but he's kind of actually getting like like I do, getting it out of the way to say like here are the people that are just being idiots about this. This is part of a wider phenomenon in the Western anti-war movement, usually called campism, by critics on the left. British Syrian author and activist Leila Al Shami gave it a stronger name, the anti-imperialism of idiots. Read her wonderful, 20, wonderful 2018 essay if you haven't done so yet. I will repeat only the main thesis here. The activity of a large part of the Western anti-war left over the war in Syria had nothing to do with stopping the war. It only opposed Western interference, while ignoring or even supporting the engagement of Russia and Iran to say nothing of their attitude to the legitimately elected Assad regime in Syria. Now, personally speaking, I would not consider Assad regime legitimately elected. And I would say all interference was bad interference, as it is here in Ukraine. Both Russia and the West are interfering with the Ukrainian political situation, as I explained. They are trying to resolve this question of, like, who are they with? Maybe they're not with anyone. Maybe they want to be with everyone. Maybe we should all want to be on everyone's side. But it's capitalism that makes these side. You know, we have to compete. We're competing in a marketplace. That's at the heart of this, that liberals never identify. They never, like, um, never comes up in conversations. Like, why are we competing? Why, why is it so important we're competing? They make it, establishment types make it about competing ideologies and culture and governments government types but it's more about competitions between in the marketplace so campism so a number of anti-war organizations have justified their silence on russian and iranian interventions by arguing that the main enemy is at home which is what i just did al shami wrote this excuses them from undertaking any serious power analysis to determine who the main actors driving the war actually are it couldn't couldn't it be all the warmongers but okay Unfortunately, we have seen the same ideological cliché repeated over Ukraine. Even after Russia recognized the independence of the People's Republics earlier this week, Branko Margasek, a writer for American Left magazine Jacobin, penned an article almost fully devoting to criticizing the U.S. Uh, when it came to Putin's actions, 
he went only as far as remarking that the Russian leader had signaled less than benign ambitions. Seriously. I'm not a fan of NATO. I know that after the end of the Cold War, the bloc lost its defensive function and led aggressive policies. I know that NATO's eastward expansion undermined efforts directed at nuclear disarmament and forming a system of joint security. NATO tried to marginalize the role of the UN, important, and the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, and to discredit them as inefficient organizations. But we cannot bring back the past, and we have to orient ourselves on the current circumstances when seeking a way out of the situation. How many times did the Western left bring up the U.S.'s informal promises to Russia, as articles I have read in the last two hours has? How often did the Western left support the legitimate security concerns of Russia, a state that owns the world's second largest nuclear arsenal? And how often did it recall the security concerns of Ukraine, a state that had to trade its nuclear weapons under the pressure of the U.S. and Russia for a piece of paper that Putin trampled conclusively in 2014? This is referring to maybe the Minsk agreement being kind of made under duress. Did it even occur, ever occur to leftist critics of NATO, that Ukraine is the main victim of the changes brought about by the NATO expansion? I, maybe we have to review my audio, but I'm pretty sure it was mentioned a few times that Ukraine has been, maybe it's my own commentary, that they're stuck in the middle. So hopefully my rhetoric is aligning with this this local leftist rhetoric, uh, rhetoric as well. I attempt to. I want, I want a synthesis here. So time and again, the Western left responded to the critique of Russia by mentioning U.S. aggression against Afghanistan, Iraq, and other states. Right? It's equivalent, but not the same. Of course, these states need to be brought into the discussion. But how exactly? It's not enough to just say they're both equally bad or it's all bad. What do, you, what do we do instead? What do we want instead? So the argument of the left should be that in 2003, other governments did not put enough pressure on the U.S. over Iraq. Not that it is necessary to exert less pressure on Russia over Ukraine now. So an obvious mistake. Talking about Iraq war. Imagine for a moment that in 2003, when the U.S. was preparing for the invasion of Iraq, Russia had behaved like the U.S. has in recent weeks, with threats of escalation. Now imagine... What the Russian left might have done in that situation, according to the dogma of our main enemy is at home, would it have criticized the Russian government for this escalation, saying that it should not jeopardize inter-imperialist contradictions? It is obvious to everyone that such behavior would have been a mistake in that case. Why was this not obvious in the case of the aggression against Ukraine? In another Jacobin article from earlier this month, Marisenik went on as far as saying, and by the way, this is not the person who was writing the Jackman article earlier. They have different writers who are on a sliding scale of good and bad. But he went on saying that Fox News' Tucker Carlson was completely right about the Ukrainian crisis. What Carlson had done was question Ukraine's strategic value to the U.S. Even Tariq Ali in the New Left Review provingly quoted the calculation of German Admiral K. Akubshakban who said that giving Putin respect over Ukraine was low cost, even no cost, given that Russia could be a useful ally against China. Are you serious? If the U.S. and Russia could reach an agreement and start a new Cold War against China and allies, would that really be what we wanted? Referring to the left. Because it's not just one country's left or another, but an international left. But 
what I was saying before about like, you know, kind of like, you know, fight the war at home first. I'm more talking about what's practical. Right. What's practical is having an international movement and having an international position. What would that position be? This is what's missing from most, if not all, conversations. I think it's been brought up once or twice. That's why I'm able to repeat it. Uh, but it's also something I've heard in the grapevine here and there when talking about geopolitics and what a left should advocate for. You know, not expanding our military alliance against their military alliance or intervening here and not there or only condemning when other people do intervening but not ours because ours is humanitarian. The position is this. Reform the UN. So here's the text. Taurus or Bilhaus. I'm not a fan of liberal interventionism. Socialists should criticize it. But this does not mean that we have to support the division of spheres of interest between imperial states. Instead of looking for a new balance between the two imperialisms, the left has to struggle for democratization of the international security order. Now, clarify. Security order exists as it does now as a hegemony of American power. You know, America, world police, is dominated by one power. As before, it was dominated by two. Where, you know, to go beyond this, it must be a democratic international. It must be everyone plays a part in international order and security which is what a multipolar world is all about. Not just a few more poles, but 283 poles, the number of nation states. But obviously it can go far beyond that. So we need a global policy and a global system of international security. We have the latter. It is the UN. Yes, it has many flaws and is often the ob object of fair criticism. But one can criticize either to refute something or improve it. In the case of the UN, we need the latter. We need a leftist vision of reform and democratization of the UN. Of course, this does not mean that the left should support all UN decisions, but an overall reinforcement of the UN's role in the resolution of armed conflicts would allow the left to minimize the importance of military political alliances and reduce the number of victims. In a previous article, I wrote how UN peacekeepers could have helped to resolve the Donbass conflict. Unfortunately, this is now irrelevant. After all, we also need the UN to solve the climate crisis and other global problems. The reluctance of many international leftists to appeal to it is a terrible mistake. After Russian troops invaded Ukraine, Jacobin's Europe editor David Broder wrote that the left, quote, should make no apologies for opposing a U.S. military response. This was not Biden's intention anyway, as he said multiple times, but a large part of the Western left should honestly admit that completely uh, fricked up formulating its response to this crisis. Now for the respective perspective of the writer. I will finish by briefly writing about myself and my perspective. Over the past eight years, the Donbass war has been the main issue that has divided the Ukrainian left. Each of us formed our position under the influence of personal experience and other factors, thus Another Ukrainian leftist would have written this article differently. I really like that he admits that. Because one Ukrainian does not speak for all Ukrainians. I was born in the Donbass, but
but in a Ukrainian-speaking nationalist family. My father became involved in the far right in the 90s, observing Ukraine's economy decay and the enrichment of the former Communist Party leadership, which he had been fighting since the mid-80s. Of course, he was very anti-Russian, also very anti-American. I still remember his words on 9-11. As he watched the Twin Towers fall on TV, he said that those responsible were heroes. He doesn't think so anymore, though. He now believes that the Americans blew them up themselves. So when the war began in Donbass in 2014, my father joined a far-right Adyar battalion as a volunteer. My mother fled Lukast, and my grandfather and grandmother stayed in their village, which fell under the control of the, well, the local government, Lungast People's Republic, as they call themselves. My grandfather condemned Ukraine's Euro-Maiden revolution. He supports Putin, who, he says, has restored order in Russia. Nonetheless, we all try to keep talking to each other, though not about politics, and to help each other. I try to be sympathetic towards them. After all, my grandfather and grandmother spent their whole life working on a collective farm. My father was a construction worker. Life has not been kind to them. The events of 2014, revolution followed by war, pushed me in the opposite direction of most people in Ukraine. The war killed nationalism in me and pushed me to the left. I want to fight for a better future for humanity and not for my nation. My parents, with their post-Soviet trauma, do not understand my socialist views. My father is condescending about my pacifism. And we had a nasty conversation after... I'm sorry, when I showed up at an anti-fascist protest with a picket sign calling for the disbanding of the Azov Regiment. When Zelensky became president of Ukraine in the spring of 2019, I hoped this could prevent the catastrophe that is unfolding now. After all, it was difficult to demonize a Russian-speaking president who won with a program of peace for Donbass and whose jokes were popular among Ukrainians as well as Russians. Unfortunately, I was mistaken. While Zelensky's victory changed the attitude of many Russians towards Ukraine, this did not prevent the war. Culture is not enough. In recent years, I have written about the peace process and about civilian victims on both sides of the Donbass war. I tried to promote dialogue, and this has gone up in smoke now. There will be no compromise. Putin can plan whatever he wants, but even if Russia seizes Kiev and installs its occupational government, we will resist it. Struggle will last until Russia gets out of Ukraine and pays for all the victims and all the destruction. Hence, my last words are addressed to the Russian people. Hurry up and overthrow Putin. It is in your interests as well as ours. Not a very practical message to end on, but I am very much committed to the narrative that must be pushed. Then we need to reform the UN. This whole... Who... It matters just as much, if not more. It matters so much. Who is facilitating negotiations? You know, if we just leave it up to individual states to hold their own negotiations and make their own deals, that are, that's like, it works in a neighborhood, in a community, but it doesn't, if we're in a community of nations, but even a community usually has some form of governance. We need global governance. And... We don't want the IMF doing our gov global governance. We don't want military alliances to be a global governance. That's like having two competing governments in the same city, or country even. We're a united world. We need to act like it and have a united government. One world government, yes. But it needs to be democratic. And the UN is not. 
it would be super simple, just a start, just a smidgen, to elect the UN representative, to make it on the ballot UN representatives, someone who is elected, someone who has to run for that position. Since international policy, and that person represents our international policy, it's really dumb having our domestic leader also be our international leader. It's usually a different person in most countries, the president and the prime minister. I'm going on a different tangent. But what I'm saying is we should elect our UN representative. They're all appointed. It's, it's a corrupt process. And the UN is not a democratic place. It's very much weighed on how big and rich the countries are, and that's the weight they have. It's plutocratic, just like the rest of our governments. So it's like, you know, to reform the UN is also, you got to reform all the states themselves. I don't want to run in circles, uh, rhetorically speaking, of what must be done. But we need to talk about it this way. Talk about that global governance is what will ensure security. And global security requires global governance. It requires global police. If you're going to speak about it like that, law, global, world war, law and order. Well, if you're a law and order type, more police, right? But it needs to be the UN's police. It needs to be international police. Not hell. You know, the equivalent, let's say a local comparison, is the US being the world policeman is if like the, if the world were a city and you have a particular like gang is, is the, is, is the, is upholding, is the, they're fighting crime. It's like having a gang of Batman. You know, there's no government, there's no police, there's no commissional Gordon. I'm sorry, I'm on a Batman kick because the Batman's an awesome movie and I love Batman. Well, not love, love's too strong, but I really like Batman. And, but Batman isn't the government, you know. <laughs> Batman isn't the police. He isn't a force for, for you know, overall good. He's just a symbol of hope in, in a decayed society. The solution, you know, Batman cannot solve crime and the social ills of Gotham City. It, it, you need good, good democratic government, which is what doesn't exist in Gotham because it's so goddamn capitalist. The thing about Gotham that makes it utopian is that it's like a libertarian capitalist society. Because in comics, th there's no such thing as a leftist. There's no leftists in in comics. No socialist movement, no... no so there's social movements. Uh, there, you know, some comics depict social movements. But no one's like it. You know, the most progressive politician you get in Gotham City is one that's just like community-focused. <laughs> or not mob bot <laughs> that's the best you can do okay so with that i'm going to close out the show so thank you um so thank you and have a good one and just remember to keep a left and wave the flags with the three lefts <laughs>